You're listening to the Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called World Upside Down, where we're looking at the book of Acts. 2,000 years ago, a movement began that completely changed our world. It started with a small, unremarkable group of people who had a remarkable message that Jesus is Lord of the entire world. So join us as we study the book of Acts and discover the message that turned the world upside down. And if you need anything at all, be sure to reach out to us at hello at tablechurchdsm.org, or you can check out our website, tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. You may have a seat. Good morning. Welcome to Table Church, everyone. It is great to see you here today. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor. We're in the midst of a series on the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand and an usher will bring you one. Just make sure your hand is nice and high. Uh, we just value you having God's word. And so be sure to open, open to it, whether it's on your phone or in your physical Bible, because we're going to be digging in today. Well, normally I would have um, somebody come read the text right now, but it's kind of a long passage. So I thought we're just going to break it down into little chunks and walk through it bit by bit in the message today, um, and it's, uh, welcome to Bible study. It's gonna, we're going to go deep into this. I got my teacher hat on this morning. Class is in session. So just warning you, not going to be a lot of jokes or stories in this one, because <laughs> we've got a lot of stuff to unpack in this text that I think is really, really cool. Some really, really neat things going on here. Um, I want you to know that we do have a Bible study on the book of Acts that starts tomorrow. It'll be Monday night starting at 7 o'clock. Like I said, starting tomorrow, and uh, Sarah Plowman is leading this Bible study, and they're going to be doing something kind of cool. It's called inductive Bible study. That's a method of studying the Bible that teaches you how to simply let the text speak for itself. A lot of times when we read the Bible, we come to it and we have all these kind of assumptions about what this particular thing must mean. We bring with it like our cultural presuppositions about stuff. Inductive Bible study is all about kind of letting the text speak for itself and putting all that stuff aside as we come to God's word. So come learn Inductive Bible study. Sarah Plowman and uh, some other wonderful people will be there, I'm sure, as well. Also, uh, we have tonight an event called Table Talk. Table Talk is specifically for people who are newer, or like we like to say, new-ish to Table Church. So that means if this is your First time here today, you're invited, you can come. Or if you've just been coming the last few months, basically if you have started coming since the last table talk, or honestly, even if you just couldn't make the last table talk, you can come tonight. But we need to know because we're buying you a meal. So mark it on your connection card, just put table talk on there, and uh, that way we will see it after church and I hope to see you there. Table talk is simply an opportunity for you to learn more about who we are, get to know the staff, get to know some other people who are newer to the church just like you. And so we look forward to meeting you there. Let's get into this. So Acts chapter 17, we'll be looking at verses 16 to 34. Verses 16 to 34 of Acts 17. And I will just dive right in with the first verse. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. When it says that the city was full of idols, that's precisely what it means. Like it was filled with idols. Imagine an idol on like every corner in Athens. It's like a forest of idols. And so we want Luke who wrote this wants us to know like 
there's a lot of idols here, like just a ton of idols. I mean, idols were a common thing in any city in ancient Rome, but apparently it was a particularly big thing in Athens. And so there's a bunch of idols. And then it says that this greatly distresses Paul. Now, the words here translated greatly distresses are very severe. Like Paul was very disturbed, very upset by what he saw, which I imagine takes quite a bit. I mean, Paul's seen a lot, right? Probably doesn't take a lot to, or probably takes a lot to, to rattle Paul's cage. And, and it's rattled here. He's very disturbed by what he sees. I mean, he's like looking around at all these idols and thinking about all these people that are held captive by, by this understanding about who God is. And so Paul decides to do something about it. He starts to reason. He's ta- he talks to the people of Athens. It says in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, this is a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers start to debate with him. Remember, Athens, this is like ground zero for ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these guys, like they were headquartered out of Athens, right? And so when you see Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debating with Paul, well, that's exactly what we'd expect to see. Epicureanism and Stoicism were two of the most popular philosophies at the time. And so, so far, this checks out historically. This is exactly what we'd expect to have happen. Now, they call Paul a babbler. That's what the NIV translates it. This word that is translated babbler um, kind of brings a sense of like pseudo-intellectual. They're calling him a pseudo-intellectual. So what that means is like he, here's a guy who can sound fancy, but actually has no idea what he's talking about. That's what they're saying. Like he's kind of got all the fancy jargon, the fancy vocabulary, but he doesn't actually really get what he's talking about. Now it's important for us to know that background. Because in a few verses, Paul is actually going to quote an Epicurean and a Stoic writer. And he's actually going to use their points to support his own, which suggests that in fact Paul is not a pseudo-intellectual, not a babbler, but Paul actually has a handle on the material. He knows what's going on here. And so... They're a little bit upset about that, but what really is going to get Paul into trouble here today is not his babbling, but rather the other charge. It says that that he is advocating foreign gods. Now, this was a no-no because they had the cultic worship system, this network of all these temples and shrines and all this stuff. It kind of worked together, and it forms the basis of not only the religious life in Athens, but also the political and the economic life in Athens as well. Like everything runs through this cultic worship system. And so if you mess with that system, then you mess with everything. And that's exactly what Paul seems to be doing. So verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So let's look at a couple things in this verse. 
First, it says that they took him. You should know that when it says they took him, it's not saying that they invited him or escorted him. It's much more forceful than that. They seized him. You could almost say they arrested him. They forced Paul to come with them. They apprehended him. And they take him to, quote, a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus means hill of Ares, or in Roman terms, it'd be Mars Hill. And they take him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And uh, the Areopagus, by the way, it refers to two things. It refers to an actual hill in Athens, and it also refers to a council that met on that hill. So when you say the Areopagus, you could be referring to one of those things or both of those things at the same time. They took him, I assume they're talking, in this passage it means both. They took him both to the hill, the Areopagus, and they took him before the council, the Areopagus. Now, the council, known as the Areopagus, was a ruling council. They held power within Athens. And so what this means is that Paul is essentially being led to a trial. They're forcing him to what is essentially a trial. I think that this matters because uh, I've, you know, I grew up in church. If you've grown up in church, maybe hearing this passage, reading this passage, my understanding of the account of Paul on Mars Hill is this idea of kind of Paul and a bunch of philosophers sitting around smoking pipes, just discussing ideas. That's kind of what I've been led to think is going on here. That's actually not what's going on here. What's going on is that Paul is being forced into a trial because he is saying some things that could really mess stuff up. He's not just sharing some interesting ideas. He's sharing some stuff that totally goes against this very structure and fabric of the Athenian society. And so they're bringing him before the council. Now, this is confirmed in the text with this really, really fascinating detail. The language that Luke uses here has some very close parallels to ancient accounts of the, of the trial of Socrates, okay? Socrates, maybe the most famous philosopher to come out of Athens, the most famous ancient philosopher. He was in Athens running around doing his thing about 500 years before Paul, and Socrates was also brought before the Areopagus 500 years prior, and he was sentenced to death. He had to drink poison, remember that? Unless he recanted his views, he had to drink poison, and he drank the hemlock. He, instead of, rather than you know, refusing the truth, he, he uh, bravely drank the hemlock as it's usually portrayed in ancient literature. But why was he sentenced to death? Here's what we read in one ancient source. It says, Socrates is guilty of rejecting the gods acknowledged by the state and of bringing in other new deities. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Paul's doing. He's rejecting the gods, of, or at least that's what they're accusing him of doing, rejecting the gods of the state, bringing in other new deities, foreign gods. Now, the trial of Socrates was widely known in the ancient world, just kind of one of those stories, particularly in Athens, that everybody, you know, it just kind of was in the fiber of their culture. Um, 
And, and so any ancient reader reading this would probably very quickly pick up on the parallels between what they're doing to Paul and what they did to Socrates as well. And it was understood by most people that Socrates was unjustly sentenced. And so you see again here now, Paul is unjustly brought before this council. Now, the bottom line of all of this, I've just given you a truckload of like historical context for this passage, haven't I? But here's the bottom line I want you to understand. Paul is being forcibly brought before a council with the power to sentence him to death. Like this is a dangerous situation for Paul. He's got, he's got to, if he doesn't want to lose his life, like he's got to figure out how to do this correctly, you know? What's he going to do here? And so this is the context for the speech that Paul's about to give before the council. And here's what it says, starting in verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul, what he's doing is actually kind of brilliant. They're saying, hey, this guy's preaching foreign gods, new, new deities. He's saying, no, I'm not. I'm talking about this one that you don't even know who it is. Like, I'm just going to tell you that you just admitted you don't know. I'm going to tell you who it is. See what he's doing there? <laughs> so he's kind of like dodging their charges a little bit. And then he proceeds to, I think, put on like a clinic in evangelism and sharing the gospel in a particular context. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Ooh, you catch that? Does not live in temples built by human hands. That is a missile into the heart of everything in the Athenian culture. And it gets worse. He is not served by human hands, by the way, lots of priests with interests in maintaining their power and position in that city. Oh, but he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives him, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the, the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So what Paul just did there is he like pulled the rug out from the Athenian culture, the cultic worship system. He said, look, guess what? God doesn't live in your little houses. God doesn't need anything from you. There's nothing none of you can do to bring God something he needs. In fact, everything you got comes from God. You guys have the direction backwards. Now remember, Paul was greatly disturbed by the idolatry in Athens, and so he comes right out of the gate with it. He just says, listen, listen, the God who made the world, you can't, you can't build him a house. He's not going to fit. Here's what Paul's doing. The Romans thought they could bring something to their gods that would make the gods do what they wanted them to do. And so they built temples. And they built shrines. They made sacrifices. They had a whole elaborate system going on. But Acts is telling us that things actually flow the other way. You can't give God something he needs. God's the one that gives you the things you need. And listen to this. At the heart of idolatry is that desire to control the thing that we worship. 
That's really what it comes down to. It's an attempt to control God or whatever it is that you happen to worship. In fact, I think idolatry is in some ways, not, not, not only this, but in many ways, it is simply an attempt to cut God down to size, to make God something we can manipulate in order to get what we want out of him. That's really what it comes down to in a lot of ways. And, and, it, and it happens even if, sometimes if you can't cut God down, then you start worshiping something other than God. If you, if you worship beauty, you'll spend your life and your money trying to reverse the inevitable. If it's popularity, then soon you'll start to sacrifice your principles, your values, in order to do and say the things that you think will get you the most popularity. Look, idolatry isn't simply about worshiping a little statue. I'm guessing most of you don't have a shrine in your house to Molech or something. If you do, tell me. I'll come over. Like, I'll take care of that for you. That's not a real temptation we've got here, you know? But listen, idolatry is every bit as prevalent here in Des Moines as it was in ancient Athens. Because idolatry isn't about the little statue or the temple. Idolatry is about a trying to control God, trying to put him in a box, put him in a temple made by human hands. That's what it comes down to. Here's what I think. I think that in the modern world, in our age, we may not have statues to worship. I think that we are the idols. I think we worship ourselves. I think we trust in our ability to control the forces of nature. You know, in the ancient world, in many places today, they still depend on God for the rain and the changing of the seasons and the harvest and all these things. You, me? I mean, unless you're a farmer, I guess. And even farmers have magnificent technology they didn't used to have. But me, I, in the middle of January, I, I can still go get some pineapple from the store. You know, like... I can get what I need whenever I need it. We trust in our ability to heal ourselves. We trust in our ability to bring happiness to ourselves. But here's what Paul knew. That way of living will eat you alive. That way of living will eat you alive. A preacher named John Tyson, I heard him share this illustration once. He said, you ever seen a baby tiger? The cutest thing in the world, baby tiger. You see a baby tiger, you're like, ah, I want one. I just want to snuggle it. But you know what happens to a baby tiger? It becomes a grown-up tiger that will maul you. And in fact, there was a guy in Manhattan that got himself a baby tiger. And he kept it in his apartment. And eventually that baby tiger grew up and tried to chew off his arm. In fact, the, the police got a call. There's a tiger trying to eat me. And they go there, and sure enough, there is a tiger in the apartment. And this guy was lying on the floor, and yeah, like the baby tiger's gonna grow up and eat. That's what sin is. Sin, it's like, oh, that looks nice. That looks so cute, kind of fun. And then it grows up to a baby tiger, or to an adult tiger, and it, and it mauls you. One day you wake up and you've got a tiger in your apartment and you're like, how did I get here? That's what sin is. And that's what, we, when we worship ourselves, slowly it gets us more and more caught in this web that we can't get out of. And one day you're gonna wake up and you're gonna say, I, 
I thought that I could do it all, but I can't. Help. This is one reason why Paul's so upset by the idolatry he sees. He understands this reality. These people are caught in a system. They're caught in a web that, that's holding them captive. And he's like, look, there's freedom from this. This isn't what God is like at all. He saw a city engulfed in a system that it dangled the carrot of blessings and happiness and freedom and all these, all these things. It dangled it in front of people and it used it to fool them out of everything that they had. If you worship here, if you sacrifice here, if you say this, if you do this, you will be blessed. That's the message. Look, no wonder Socrates was killed. He came along and taught people critical thinking. He taught them how to ask questions about the system. You know, ever heard of the Socratic method? It's like just a process of asking questions to draw out the truth. And that's what he did. Paul didn't do that. Paul just came along and proclaimed the truth. Paul's threatening the entire system. It says, listen, there is nothing more threatening to idolatry than the message that God doesn't need anything from you, but freely gives you more than you can ask. That cuts idolatry at the root. If we understand, look, God doesn't actually need anything from me. He just, he just loves me. We'll get to this later, but there is only one thing you can give God, and that is full surrender of your entire life. Worship. Idolatry is an attempt to control the thing we worship for our own ends. Listen, churches commit idolatry all the time. Some of you have seen it. Some of you have, I think, probably been burned by it. There, there's this idea sometimes there's a ruling class of people with knowledge, and they have the knowledge, they have the keys, and if you want access to God, then you must sit under me. I'm the one who has the knowledge, and we here are the ones with the knowledge, and everything outside of us is utter darkness, and so if you want God, then you must come here in order to get it. That's idolatry. That is, that is trying to control God. God lives here in this place that we built. Now, I also want to say this. The opposite is also true. The opposite of that is, you know what? I don't need the community. I've got my bulletproof powers of reason. I can figure out God for myself. I'm good. I don't need anything or anyone. That's also trying to cut God down to size. God does not live in temples made by human hands. God is not something we control. It's not something we figure out. What we know of God is what he reveals to us. Now, we've been using a word in this series. Uh, the word is apocalyptic. We keep saying the kingdom of God is an apocalypse. Apocalypse, that's a spooky word. You think about like end of the world, nuclear war, something like that. That's not what that word means. It simply means revealing, uncovering, revelation. That's what it means. And so when we say that the gospel is an apocalypse or that the kingdom of God is an apocalypse, what we're saying is that it has been revealed to us in Christ and that we couldn't figure it out ourselves. Because, you know, humans have been trying to figure out God for, for millennia. You know what's kind of crazy is nobody ever anticipated Jesus. Like nobody reasoned their way to Jesus. Nobody said, you know, I'll tell you what God is like. He's like a peasant from Galilee who came when he didn't have to and died on a cross because of what we did. Like nobody figured that out. Nobody saw Jesus come. It's an apocalypse. 
It's an unveiling, a revealing. This, this is what God is actually like. And all of your attempts to try to rationalize, figure all of that stuff, I mean, good job trying, right? A for effort. But you never saw this coming. A God who loves so much that he would, that he would give himself for us. Paul goes on and he actually quotes, like I said earlier, two Greek writers, an Epicurean and a Stoic writer, is my understanding. Um, Epimenides is one of them. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul's quoting somebody else there. And then Eratus is another guy who wrote, apparently he wrote, we are his offspring. We are his offspring, which became kind of a, a common phrase that pops up in various ancient writings. And, and here we have Paul quoting them. Now, according to Kevin Rowe, he's a New Testament scholar, the way that Paul uses those phrases in this passage actually flips their meaning from the, what, what they were meant for in their original contexts. So when the philosopher said, in him we live and move and have our being, what they were saying, their point was, look, we're all in God. Therefore, we can plainly see who God is and what he's doing and all these things. Like we have the vision of God because we are in him. We live and we move and we have our being within him so we are really one with him. That's what they were trying to say. And then when Eridus says we are his offspring, his point was, well, look, we're like God's children and so therefore we're like God which means we can therefore understand God. You see, so these are attempts to kind of elevate the ability, our ability to come to God knowledge. Paul is doing the opposite. In him we live and move and have our being. For Paul, that means that, look, you are utterly dependent on God for everything. Everything you have comes from him. Only in him can you live. Your existence is tied to him. We are his offspring. Well, yes, that means that God made you. You are contingent upon God. If not for God, you are nothing. That's Paul's point. And so do you see how he's using it for the opposite point? And here's what I'm trying to say. The Athenians thought they could figure out God. They thought they could put him on a leash, box him up, and use him for profit. And when I say God, really, it was the gods, right? Paul is saying to them, hey, don't be so sure of yourself. Don't be so sure you can figure out God. Look, we don't worship in temples a whole lot here, but we still convince ourselves that we are the ones in control. We have harnessed nature. We can fly from one end of the world to the other in a few hours. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fly to Zambia here in a week and a half. Like, it's gonna be kind of a brutal plane ride. It's a long one, but it's gonna take me, you know, just a few hours, really. We are the ones that have, we have medicine that cures things that would have killed us a few decades ago. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he, he wrote a book um, asking the question, why is it that 500 years ago, if you didn't believe in God, you would have been weird? Whereas today, it's quite easy. Atheists 
I mean, there's a lot, they're everywhere, right? Like, in fact, the, the assumed position of our culture is a secular one. Like, if you have beliefs about God, keep those to yourself. Those have no place in the public square. And, and he said, what changed? Like, how do we go from this to this? And, and he lays out this tremendous historical account of everything in the last 500 years. It's, it's a long book, and it's won multiple really high-level prizes. And what he says in the book is he says, look, there's, not, there's no um, discovery that we've made that suddenly proves there's no God. There, there's no scientific data that suddenly demonstrates atheism to be probably the case and that's why we see the data and we're reasonable and so we come to those. He said, that's not what's happening. Actually, what's going on here is it's a feeling. Our technological and scientific advances have, have given us a feeling that we're in control. And the more you feel like you're in control, the less you need anyone else to help you the less you need a God to be there for you because you have now become God for yourself. So we live with an illusion of control. We are shielded from, from death. Okay, technology has removed our need to rely on, like I said earlier, the changing of the seasons. We feel like the masters of our own destiny. But look, that whole thing, it, it, it rests on a house of cards and it's gonna come crumbling down at some point for all of us. My grandpa right now is lying in a, in a hospice bed at the end of his life. It comes for us all. And we have become very, very good at shielding ourselves from that reality. And we are very, very good at fooling ourselves into thinking that we're in control. That's why I think that we are our own idols. And so it's no surprise that this feeling of control starts to bleed over into the way that we think about God. And if you can start to do more and more and more and more and more for yourself, you need God less and less and less and less. Pretty soon you start to wonder, why is God even necessary? Do I even need him? Listen, Athens worshiped false gods, but in the modern age, we worship ourselves. We are the ones who we believe will bring answers. But if Paul were here today, I think he might remind us that God is actually the one in, him we, in whom we live and move and have our being. That every, life and breath and everything else comes from him. And that this idea that we are in control, it's just, it's an illusion. It's, a, it's an incredible illusion. Amazing, the, the technological advances that we've made to get ourselves here is incredible. And thank God for most of them, you know? But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we are actually in control. There's a book by C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Don Treader. And in this book, there's a character named Eustace Eustace is a real piece of work. He's, I mean, he is this self-centered, miserable towards everybody else, thinks only of himself. And he's greedy and his greed leads him to a cave. One day they're on an island and he's like, I'm so sick of these people. He goes up and he finds a cave full of treasure. And so, of course, he goes in there and, and he finds this beautiful bracelet and he slides it on his arm and he falls asleep on top of the treasure. And when he wakes up, he finds out he'd been turned into a dragon. And when he turned into a dragon, of course, his arm got bigger, which means the, the bracelet squeezing his arm and it hurts like crazy. And so Eustace is a dragon now and slowly he starts to realize how alone he feels, how badly he wishes he could talk to the others once again. And something inside of Eustace 
starts to change. He's cut off from them and he, and he realizes how much he needs the others. One night, the lion, Aslan, comes to him and leads him to a magical well and Eustace sees the well and he knows I need to get into that well. That well is gonna heal me and make me feel, my arm feel better. I need to get into that water. But Aslan says that before he can get into that pool of water, he has to undress. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm a dragon, I don't have any clothes on. And he realizes, oh, he means take off my dragon skin. And so Eustace starts to claw at his scales and slowly starts to peel away his, his dragon flesh. And finally, he peels it away and outsteps the boy, Eustace, once again. And he goes over to the well, and as he gets into the well, he realized that the dragon flesh had grown back all of a sudden. And so he does this over and over and over again. And every time he tries to get, right when he's about to get in the well, the flesh grows back. And eventually, Aslan says, I'm going to have to do it for you. And Eustace lays on his back as this lion digs its claws into his flesh and painfully starts to peel it away. And it's this incredible image of what it looks like as God works on our hearts and slowly peels away our flesh, our self-centeredness. Listen, Eustace is a metaphor for the modern age. Modern humans. Confident, self-possessed. He's a man of science. He has little patience for the magic of Narnia, even when it's staring him in the face. Eustace is sure he understands the way things really work. And the thing he needs more than anything is to be reminded how helpless he is. Listen, we are Eustace. We don't need anything. We don't need anyone. And one of the things that modernity teaches is that you are smart enough and rational enough to figure life out for yourself. It puts human wisdom in the center of it all. But Acts tells us that no, like he is the author of life. We are utterly dependent on God. The Athenians had built a system where they can manipulate the gods, but we've built a system where we have become God. And Paul looks at both of us and he calls our bluff. Here's what he says in verse 30. So what are we to do? It says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is not simply saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a complete turnaround, a complete change. He's saying, realize how helpless you are to save yourself and surrender fully to God. Get down on your back and let God peel away that, all that stuff, all that selfishness, all that greed, all the ways that you're relying on yourself and put your trust in him. Look, your bank account's gonna run out one day. Medicine will fail you one day. Your body will fail you one day. You cannot build a fortress strong enough to stave off the onslaught that we call time. If we make ourselves gods, then our gods are quite weak. There's this image I like to use sometimes. Imagine your life is a house. And many of you here are Christians and so you, when you became a Christian, you said, okay, Jesus, come into my house. The problem is that a lot of times when we do that, what we don't realize at the time is we're actually only letting him on the front porch or maybe in the living room. Jesus, come on in the living room. And over time, as we walk in the community of followers of Jesus, as we study the scriptures, as we worship God, we start to realize 
there's rooms in my house that, I, that I'm not letting God into. And so we say, okay, Jesus, you can have the, the kitchen. You can have the hallway and the bathroom. The hard, one of the hard ones is the bedroom. We don't like to give Jesus the bedroom. But eventually, a lot of times, unfortunately, what happens is you get caught or you get an addiction or something like that. And then eventually, then you finally give Jesus your bedroom. And so then we think, oh, okay, I've given Jesus all the rooms in my house. But you know what? God will eventually come to you again. He'll say, hey, you know that, you know that, little, that little closet that you got? Oh, you're like, Jesus, no, I don't want That's all I got left is my little closet. He's like, I want the closet too. I want you to fully surrender to me. And so I wonder if there's some of us here today who just needs to do that. You need to give God your closet. You need to give him the whole house. You've been trying to control. You've been trying to do it yourself. Maybe you need to let God on your front porch. Maybe you haven't even done that yet. I don't know. But if you haven't given him the closet yet, what is it? What is it? As I'm saying, if you'll know, if, if I'm saying this and you've got it in your mind and you're like, ah, I don't think I can let that go. That's what it is. That's what's in the closet. And it's time to surrender it to him. Because listen, remember, that baby tiger is going to grow. It's going to become an adult one day. And you're going to wake up and you're like, how did I get here? So stop making yourself the person who controls your destiny and make God the one. Give your full trust and surrender to him. The theological word is sanctification. It means to be set apart and to be fully um, to be fully used by God. To let God have your entire house. That's what it means to be sanctified. When we come to Christ, he forgives our sins, but that doesn't mean that we're not still rotten, miserable people like Eustace. You know, after Eustace loses his dragon skin finally, after the lion Aslan takes it off of him, he's a different person after that, but he still has a long ways to go. And so maybe for us, that's where we're at. Like, We've been following Jesus for a while, but we've still got a ways to go, and it's time to give him control of our lives. If that's what you want to do today, I want to invite you to do it. Would you close your eyes with me now, and let's pray. Well, God, it's true. In you, we live and move and have our being, and life and breath and everything else comes from you. And so often, God, we start to think that life and breath and everything comes from me, comes from us, comes from Humanity and the incredible advances we make. And Lord, those are all amazing and, and we, pray, we thank you for them. But let's not fool ourselves here where it all begins. And so Lord, today we give you the whole house. We ask that you would take every single square inch of our being and we surrender fully to you. Peel off the layers, the flesh, the, the greed, the, the control, the need to... Uh, be at the center. Lord, peel that away from us, even though it hurts sometimes. May we fully surrender to you now. And if you are fully surrendering to God, if you're making a step today, would you let us know on your connection card? You can write it any way you want, but the simplest way to do it is to circle that cross. And that way we can pray with you, we can reach out and we can walk with you. God, thank you for um, being here today. And as we sing to you now, would you please accept our sacrifice? Would you please be pleased by what we do here? In your name, amen.